Allen on politics. It ends up rewarding and protecting incumbents. It makes it harder for third parties to arise. Together we'll stand. We've grown up with one person, one vote. We would change that to one candidate, one vote. Every boy, girl, woman, and a man. Hello again, this is Alan, and the show is Alan on Politics. That uh, musical number you just heard was Canty performing Let's Work Together. Today I'd like to extend a greeting to followers of the podcast version of this show in Europe that have started listening recently. Welcome. And my topic of the day is alternative voting methods, different ways that we can mark and count ballots that would strengthen democracy in the United States. So I've been talking a lot in my shows so far about democracy, and I've made the point that the men who wrote the U.S. Constitution were not trying to create a democracy. They were trying to create a system of government that had strong democratic elements, such as the right of ordinary people to vote, at least some ordinary people at the time, and balance that against the rights of a wealthy elite. Like all people who have some degree of wealth in a society, they tended to think that people who were better off financially were also better equipped to govern. So they wanted to create this um, institution with a dual structure of protecting the common people from the very wealthy and protecting the wealthy from the common people. Uh, I think they were wrong in two ways in their thinking on this. First of all, I don't think people have the kind of motivations they assign to them. The assumption seems to be if you give power to ordinary people, they're going to inevitably, out of greed or envy, want to take wealth and money away from the wealthy. I don't see that as necessarily true. I see it as true in certain circumstances. Ordinarily, people want property themselves, so they are willing to protect property rights in the hope that they themselves can work themselves to a position where they have some wealth and something they can pass on to their family. I think where people turn against the wealthy is when the situation becomes one which seems unfair to them and their own financial security is threatened say in a case where either your standard of living has declined or is declining or is vulnerable to decline when you look around yourself and you see many people who can't even afford to keep a roof over their head or can't afford medical help when they need it, then we've had something unfair going on in our system. So I think that sense of unfairness and vulnerability is what pushes people to start to resent the wealthy, especially in the case where the wealthy, at least a, a small percentage of them, are so much more wealthy than the rest of us that you figure they couldn't possibly miss what, what you need to provide for other needs. So I think they're wrong on people's motivations that as long as people have some sense that they can improve their situation in a realistic way, then people are going to be supportive of the right to property in general. I also think they're wrong on the theory of property uh, specifically, that it, it's some kind of natural right that nobody else has a um, right to interfere with. The only way I can see a right to property being justified is on the basis that 
private property serves the common welfare, serves the good of all the people in the society, and that it's not just there to serve the interest of a few at the expense of the many. So I, I say democracy outweighs the right of private property. Not necessarily that private property has to be abolished, but certainly that you have to have a political system that guarantees the common people are able to control the government, or at least able to hold the government accountable for their own well-being, despite what that may mean for the property of people who have a lot of it. So I'm going to talk about strengthening democracy in the United States. And by democracy here, I mean specifically representative democracy, where you get to vote for the people who are going to represent you in important government positions, not direct democracy where people uh, somehow face-to-face -face are debating and resolving issues. That is, that's just impractical in the population of our size, really in the size of almost every electoral jurisdiction in the United States. The population is a little too large for everybody to get together and do that. So we have a system of representative de democracy, and that means that the right to vote is the most important democratic right that we have under our system of government and in any um, modern, what we now call democracy. In fact, democracies become, uh, the word democracy has become kind of constrained just to mean where people have the right to vote, but not, as I said a moment ago, necessarily the right to have a meaningful vote, a vote that can actually hold the government accountable and get it to meet their needs. So representative democracy, what would it take to make it work better? In this episode, I'm going to talk about what kind of uh, problems we're trying to solve. We're looking at alternative voting methods, what, um, what a theory of representative democracy would ideally ask for out of a voting system. And I'm going to look at it different ways of voting. And by that, uh, voting methods, I'm not talking about who has the right to vote or, um, or how hard it is for people to vote or whether you vote at, at a polling place or by mail-in ballots. I'm talking specifically about how you mark your ballots and how those ballots are counted to determine winners. Here I'm going to look at different alternative voting systems. First of all, the ones that are most widely used, all of them have in common that you can choose only one of the candidates or parties presented to you. So it's a choose only one type system. In the United States, we have our pick one candidate and whoever gets the most votes wins system, which has a bunch of different names, first past the post or single member plurality. Uh, but it's the one most Americans are going to be familiar with, at least most U.S. citizens are going to be familiar with. Then we have a variation of that called top two, which is essentially the same system, but you have a runoff round in which the two top vote getters run against each other in order to assure that the winner has a majority and not just a fraction of the vote, as happens under many of our elections. So those two are the most common in the United States. In fact, they're the most common in modern democracies around the world. The second most common form around the world is proportional representation, where in the simplest form, there's a lot of variations of proportional representation, but in the simplest form, Parties get seats in a legislature depending on their proportion of the vote. So you get to vote for a party, and if 10% of you voted for that party, you get 10% of the seats in the legislature. So it's more of a multi-party system, even though you only get to make one choice. 
those two, I'm going to say why I don't think that proportional representation is our goal. I've said in the past that I don't think it's entirely practical in the United States. We could institute it in some types of elections, but there's so many offices in the United States that are single winner offices that um, the benefits of proportional representation would be significantly watered down. I also just don't think proportional representation itself is ideal. So I'm going to look at systems where you don't, where you're not restricted to choosing only one candidate or only one party. These are called preferential voting systems, which means you get to show preferences between the different choices. Like I like both of these choices, or I like this one a little more than that one, or here's the order I prefer them in. It gives more of an ability to voters to express themselves. So that second set will include um, approval voting, ranked choice voting, which is getting more and more better known, and a version of score voting called star voting, which would be my preference for the best voting system in the United States that I can at this point imagine. So first of all, before we do anything else, we're going to have to talk a little bit about how representative democracy should work and what we're trying to fix about our current system. If we gonna fix the U.S., we gotta start with them two letters, me and you. Somebody told us that the government wanna keep us broke, but the only reason why those people in the government is because we ain't vote, and I ain't talking about the... The music clip was from My Vote Don't Count by Yellow Pain. What are the criteria we should use in evaluating different voting methods? Experts in the field have a lot of different criteria that they apply, but I'm going to simplify this by just bringing it down to three that I think are particularly important. The first is accountability. It should be reasonably possible to vote an incumbent out of office if a majority of the public is dissatisfied with their performance. If you can't get rid of them, even though most of the public would like to, that's not a very accountable system. The second criterion is representativeness, and this has two sides to it. On the one hand, you want to represent the variety of views present in the public. On the other hand, you want to be able to show majority support across all these different views. Start with the first one here. It should be possible for a voter to vote for the candidate or party that most closely resembles their views or represents their views and feel assured that that vote is going to have an effect on the outcome. On the other hand, you want all voters to feel like they did have a stake in the outcome so that there's majority or better support for the winner. The third criterion is simplicity, which just means that the voters should easily be able to understand how the outcome was arrived at in the counting process. Now, these first three voting methods that I want to evaluate all have in common that the voter can make only one choice in an election. They all pass the simplicity criterion, as is evidenced in the fact that they're the most widely used voting methods in modern democracies. Here in the United States, two of them are very common. The first is what I would call the pick-only-one-most-votes-wins voting method or you could also call it the pick-only-one plurality system because plurality means the most votes. There's a tendency for this to become a two-party system, as I've talked about in other episodes of this program, and that is because if only one candidate's going to win and everyone else is going to lose, the two front-runners are going to be the most important choices. If you vote for someone other than the front-runner, front your vote is going to have no effect at all. 
So voters tend to migrate towards the leading candidates and they'll further create a, uh, um, a larger coalition for those candidates. It results in finally two major parties and a lot of marginalized minor parties. So on accountability, how does this two-party system fare? It's hard to get rid of incumbents, as you can see by the track record in the United States. We're not always that enthused by the results of uh, the governments and what, what incumbents are doing, but still we tend to re-elect them election after election after election. And that's largely because of the two-party system. In the general election, because there's only two viable candidates, one from each major party, it will take a lot of disgust at the incumbent to get his voters from that party to either stay home or vote for the other party. Now, there's a possibility, if it's a close election, if it's a competitive jurisdiction, for swing voters to make the difference. Swing voters are, of course, those who show a propensity to move from one party to another during uh, different election cycles. So there's a possibility of getting rid of the incumbent if a majority of voters that would be the other major party and the swing voters all can make up a bigger percentage to get rid of her or him. But it's hard. Now, what if it's not a competitive jurisdiction, but it's a jurisdiction in which voters tend to lean toward one of the major parties? Well, here it's going to be even harder to get together a majority to vote against the incumbent, even though a majority may be dissatisfied with the incumbent that party's voters are going to stick with the incumbent and there may not be enough swing voters to make a difference. Now there is another possibility for getting rid of the incumbent and that is in the primary for that party. Here the split vote becomes a problem. Now say a majority of the party's primary voters want to get rid of the incumbent. Well that is going to attract a lot of challengers because they see an opportunity to win the nomination. If those challengers split the dissatisfied voters' votes among them, the incumbent may retain a core of supporters that's large enough to get them to the nomination. So by splitting the vote among a number of challengers to the incumbent, the incumbent still has a good chance of winning. So hard to get rid of incumbents in a two-party system. Um, it's possible, but difficult. What about representativeness? Well, here, it's very bad at the first side of representativeness, representing a variety of views. If um, people vote for alternative party or candidate that best reflects their views, they're going to have no effect on the outcome. Folks who are even somewhat dissatisfied with one of the major parties but like it better than the other are going to be there even though they don't fully agree with it. On the other side, uh, it does combine a lot of voices into large part of the public's support. Uh, if the candidate wins with a majority, that can show that at least they have a big segment of the public. But because the other major party is going to pull in a lot of candidates, that also shows that there's a large segment of the public that is opposed to the first candidate. So a bare majority, maybe, and that's better. That's better than just less than a majority, which is also possible, because uh, if enough voters go to other parties, then there may each of the major parties may get a little less than a majority, but one of them wins just because they had more votes than the other. So that's not even majority support. It shows that a lot of voters didn't vote for the candidate who won. Uh, mixed bag on representativeness, but overall I would give it a low score. 
The second voting method to consider is one that's very similar to the first, in that there's an election, you get to pick only one, but the candidate has to have a majority to win rather than simply more than anybody else. But it's got the same incentives as the other form. Because you have to get a majority to win, there's going to be two parties that have the best chance of getting the majority, and they're going to attract voters from other who might possibly have been voting for other parties because they like them better. If you want to have a voice in the outcome, you're still going to want to go to one of the major parties because they have the best chance of getting a majority or going to the top two. If nobody gets a majority in the first election, then there's a runoff election in which the two leading candidates go to the top two. That means that you end up at the top two election, the runoff round, with just two major parties, and it has the same score on accountability and representativeness that the other system had. A little better than the first one, maybe, but not a lot better. The third method is quite different, and that's proportional representation. This is used in a lot of European countries, as well as in Latin America and some other places, but unfamiliar in the United States. Here, the proportion of seats in a legislature is assigned to parties based on each party's proportion of votes in the election. How does this fare on accountability? Well, the measure here is not whether you can get rid of an incumbent, but rather you can get rid of a majority party, that is, the party that has a majority in the parliament, the legislative body. It's very possible to get rid of the majority party simply by moving to a party that's similar to that, but is not the majority party. So as a voter, if you're unhappy with the majority party, you can move to another party that fairly closely represents your views because that vote's going to mean something. You can still get somebody into a seat because that party, if it meets a certain threshold, gets some representation. On the other hand, representativeness has, has a mixed record here. You can represent the variety of views in the public because people feel free to vote for the party that best represents them. As long as they get enough support, they'll get some representation, which is meaningful to the voter. But on the side of showing broad support, that's more difficult. It's hard for a single party to get a majority. They usually have to join up with another party in order to form a majority in the legislature. And that's because voters have somewhere else to go, right? Um, even though you are good at representing a variety of views, it's hard to create a majority party, hard to get the government to know which way to go, instability in the government, and sometimes just plain, um, like in our system where you just can't get anything done because you have to have new elections keep hoping to form a majority party. So that's how those uh, three systems stack up. Next, I want to turn to preferential voting, which are not as common, but are the leading alternatives being presented in the United States. That bit of music was from Elected by Alice Cooper. In this next set of three voting methods that I'm going to evaluate, I'm calling them preferential voting because in two of them, voters are able to show their relative preferences between the candidates. And in one of them, voters are able to show the preference for more than one candidate. Now, this is distinguished from the more common methods of voting that I discussed in the last segment, which all limited the voter to picking one candidate or one party. I'm going to use the same criteria of accountability, 
representativeness, and simplicity to evaluate these three methods, which are getting attention in the United States as possible replacements for the voting methods we're more familiar with. Approval voting is the simplest of the three. You get a ballot that's similar to the one we're used to in the United States, where it lists out the candidates, but instead of picking just one, you have the option of picking more than one candidate to give a vote to. And then the votes are added up and whoever has the most votes wins. Pretty simple, easy to tell who the winner should be. Um, the advantage here goes to voters who had some ambivalence between voting for an alternative party or independent candidate and still wanting to have a say in which of the two major parties would win the election. So it, it resolves that dilemma for them by saying you can vote for both. Okay, but I don't think this is going to change the two-party system very much for this reason, and that is that for all the ambivalent voters who are now voting for a major party when they might have liked to vote for a minor party, they're now going to be able to vote for both. So that increases the share of votes, that increases the number of votes for the alternative party candidate. But then the alternative party voters who chose that but still had some preference between the two major parties, they're also going to vote for both, meaning the vote total of the major parties are going to go up as well. My sense is it's going to end up with a two-party system just like we have now. We don't have a lot of experience with this yet to see how it will go in practice. It was first proposed, I think, around 1971, and in the last 50 years, it's only been adopted in the last five and only in two cities, St. Louis, Missouri, and Fargo, North Dakota, and that's very recent, so they haven't had many elections yet. But because this uh, this is going to give the major parties a boost as well as the minor parties, I think you're still going to end up with a two-party system. Uh, people will be keeping voting for the major parties because they keep winning. And on accountability, it'll still be hard to get rid of incumbents that there's disillusionment with because party affiliations will still trump those kind of... Um, uh, desire to see the incumbent replaced in the part of that incumbent's party. And in terms of representativeness, there is some improvement because it gives a clearer picture of how many voters actually are attracted to alternative party candidates and independent candidates. So you get a sense of that, but those votes don't really um, count very much in the final outcome. It does give a broad sense of what the public wants because the final winner is going to be the choice of um, those voters that voted for them, getting the most votes means there's going to be a lot of voters, but not necessarily a majority. Not good on that score. So slight improvement on one score of representativeness, maybe a slight decline on the other, but it has the virtue of being simple and easy to understand. Ranked choice voting is a system in which you can rank the candidates in your relative order of preference. Now, this is a system that there's a lot more experience with. It's been used for over 100 years in Australia, and it's been used for various offices in other countries as well. In the United States over the past maybe 25 years or so, it's been spreading to more and more city and county elections. And in the last few years, it's been adopted by the states of Maine and Alaska for use in higher offices as well. So we do have a lot of experience with it. Now, here's how it works. Voters can rank candidates in the order of choice on their ballot, my first choice, second choice, third choice, and et cetera. And then in the initial counting, only those first choice rankings are counted. If a candidate gets the majority, it's over that candidate won. 
If no candidate gets a majority, similar to top two, there has to be a runoff. But here it's not a separate election. It's simply recounting the ballots. But first, eliminating the candidate that got the fewest first choice votes and giving those ballots instead to each voter's next choice. And then counting again, majority win, no, no majority, another round of counting, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, if there's a lot of candidates on the ballot, this could be a lot of rounds of counting. In most cases, it seems like first round of counting settles it, and that's because the two-party system persists. Uh, most voters are going to one of two major parties, and that means it can be easily settled in the first round. Now, what it does do is it allows voters who are more attracted to alternative parties to now score that alternative party as their first choice, showing in the first round of counting what the real uh, number of voters are who like those parties, and still say in their in their second choice that which major party candidate they preferred. So they can have it both ways, and it it does it doesn't conflate um, the vote for the major party and minor party, your preference between them, because you've indicated your rank ordering. So I think it still results in a two-party system. Accountability is going to be hard. It's going to be hard to get rid of incumbents from the major parties. In terms of representativeness, uh, it does give more show to which parties, uh, which variety of parties voters do have some interest in, but those votes don't necessarily make a difference in the outcome because their candidates are going to be eliminated in one of the rounds. And broad support, yeah, it does, because it aggregates votes across these various party choices into a final winner that has a majority of what other ballots are left. Simplicity, it doesn't get a high score in this, because if there are multiple rounds of counting, it's going to be hard for the average voter to kind of decipher what the meaning of each of those rounds of election are. Not impossible, but more difficult than other forms of voting. Finally, we have star voting, which is a variation of score voting. In score voting, instead of ranking the candidates, you give them each a score depending on your relative preference for them. Low score for those you really wouldn't like to win, higher scores for those who you would like to see win. And this has the advantage that you could give two candidates the same score if you like them equally. Um, star voting, score then automatic runoff, adds a runoff to the system so that when the scores are added up, the top two candidates, the top two scoring candidates, then go to a runoff round, which is an automatic runoff, determining by looking at every ballot and saying, which of those two candidates did that ballot give the higher score to? So that ballot goes to that candidate. So it's a majority winner in the second round. Star voting hasn't been used in any but a few experimental elections. There have been initiative campaigns instituted at the city and county level in at least one Oregon county and one Oregon city as well, the city in the same county. So haven't seen too much of it in practice, but in theory it sounds good, at least to me. Here on accountability, because voters actually have a chance to show a much higher score for an alternative party candidate, there's a possibility that if that party can show that it's getting high scores and it can attract more voters giving it higher scores and can actually displace a major party. Think of it this way. When you, are, you prefer a minor party candidate, an alternative party candidate, but you want to make sure you have a say be between the two major party candidates, you can give your highest score, a 5, to the alternative party, a 1 to the major party candidate you prefer, and a 0 to the major party candidate you don't want. That means when it comes to the scoring, you've given a big boost to your alternative party candidate, 
not such a boost to the major party candidate. And then in the final runoff round, if it comes down to the new two major party candidates, you still showed your preference. So this does have the potential for giving alternative party candidates and independent candidates a bigger boost than ranked choice voting would. Um, accountability, I think it's feasible that it would be better at removing incumbents that people are dissatisfied with because instead of giving them high scores, the that party's voters might give them somewhat lower scores to indicate that they're not that happy with them, him or her. And in terms of representativeness, I think it has the best of both worlds because all the preferences are used, not just the top preference. A candidate who gets a lot of sort of high but not high scores actually has a chance of getting into the runoff. You know, a lot of threes and fours added up is as good as a smaller number of fives added up. It gives voice to those those voters' preferences for all the different parties. Actually, any party that you give a score to that has some impact on the outcome, determining who will be in the runoff. And in the final runoff, it's a majority choice, so it also shows a broad voice on the part of the public, a unified voice on the part of the public. So best of both worlds. Simplicity. It's not the simplest method, but I think it's easier to explain than the result of ranked choice voting with multiple rounds. In Star, it's simply which two candidates got the highest scores and which of those two was preferred by the most voters. Easy to display, easy to understand. But that's it for this week. I'd like to hear your comments. Please add them to the um, Allen Politics Facebook page or YouTube channel. Like, subscribe, share, all that good stuff. And I hope you come back to hear more next week. Thanks a lot. Goodbye.